Well, most of you know our guest speaker for today, uh, Dick Leon. I, I'm going to introduce him anyways because I always take uh, every opportunity I get to say good things about Dick Leon. Um, he, he was my predecessor here, if you don't know him, and much of the health and strength of this church is owing to certainly God and to a great congregation, but also his leadership here for the years that he was here. He just did a great job here, and I've said to my, I say to my colleagues all the time, you want to be the pastor that follows Dick Leon. Because he just sets you up really, really well. More than that, though, personally, he has been a great mentor to me over the years that I've been here. I've been here 10 years. I still call him for advice. I regularly get together with him because I, oh, I just want his counsel because he's so wise. But beyond all of that, the thing I most admire about Dick is the quality of his character. Next to the phrase, honorable man in the dictionary, should be a picture of Dick Leon because he defines the term, in my opinion. Please welcome him to our pulpit. Scott, your, your uh, credibility rating is going to go down if you keep that up. That's, uh, that's too generous, but thank you very much. Actually, I want to commend you, Scott, for the sermon series that you've chosen for the summer, the I Am Sayings, which focus on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, this last winter... A friend of ours, actually someone who is uh, supported by this church, a missionary, Donald Marsden, sent us an audio tape of another missionary, Carl Medeiros, who has a heart for the Muslim world. Carl Medeiros was in southern Lebanon uh, relating with Muslims of Hezbollah, and they asked him to speak at a mosque. So uh, he said, fine, and on his way in, ready to speak, the imam stopped him and said, we're glad to have you here, but please do not say anything about Christianity. <laughs> so Carl's thinking, now let me think where I'm going to go. And then he said, however, you may speak about Jesus. You know, sadly, there is a difference in these two. And that's a wonderful rule, not just in talking with Muslims, but talking with our neighbors. Uh, in the same tape, Carl conducted a little interview in Boulder, uh, Colorado. He stood on the street and he uh, interviewed people for one hour and he asked them, what do you think of Christianity? And he said, all of those who came through, except those, he said, who belonged to the club, uh, were 100% negative. Then the next hour, he asked, what do you think of Jesus Christ? And everyone who answered was 100% positive. That's quite instructive to us, isn't it? So, Scott, another good idea that you have on this summer series. I commend you for it. By the way, I hope all of you know what a gem you have in Scott Dudley. I mean, this guy, he has just done a terrific job. I'm so proud of you for the manner with which you've led this congregation since I've been here. And it's, it's, it's so good that I no longer have to come every summer and correct your theology. I mean, it's, you're doing a great job. Well done. All right. In this text, we find the Apostle John flat on his face, paralyzed by fear, totally useless. Jesus speaks to him and says, Fear not, I am the first, the last, and the living one. 
And John moves from fear to courage, from being useless to being useful for the kingdom. So this morning, I want to have us talk about ways in which this faith in Jesus Christ does that for us as well. First, let's think of the fear factor in life. Uh, Since retiring, Carol and I have taken up golf. Uh, I call it uh, my weekly assault on my ego. I mean, it's the most humbling sport you've ever played. Uh, I can stand at a a driving range and hit great shots, but put me on a tee box and uh, keeping score and friends around and lake a lake in front of me, and I come up with a totally different swing. I get a brain cramp, and uh, my muscles tighten up, my, my tempo is terrible, and I chunk a clunk right where I don't want it to go. The reason is fear. Fear messes up a golf swing. And fear messes up life, too. Let me just think of some of the things that we've been fearful, all of us are perhaps legitimately fearful of. We've come through a season of years in these past uh, few years where we all had money fears uh, for our job, for our home, for our income, for our investments in in retirement or in uh, college funds and so forth, properly, money fears. We have a lot of safety fears, especially, I think, for our kids and our grandkids. We live in a culture where moral boundaries have gone And we've saturated the neighborhood with guns and adolescent emotions. I mean, it's stupid. And rightfully, we fear that. We have health fears. Losing our health. Cancer or an illness or an accident or a stroke. And and the older we get, like those of us in the older ranks, we fear losing our mind. At least our memory. Someone says the older you get, the more your mind wanders. And sometimes it just doesn't come back. It just keeps right on going. And now we have weather fears, don't we? I mean, look what happened on the East Coast and the Midwest, storms and so forth. And Seattle, a heat wave in June and July, good grief. Uh, uh, Kids are always fearful of storms. Johnny was going to bed one night. It's a huge storm outside. Thunder and lightning, a wind and rain, and mommy's putting him to bed. And he looks up at mommy and says, Mommy, I'm scared. Would you please sleep with me tonight? And mommy says, Oh, Johnny, you're going to be all right. Besides, I have to sleep with daddy tonight. Long pause, and Johnny says, The big sissy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have a lot of fears. I want to tell you the story of a man we met two months ago when we did a trip to Israel. Uh, a Palestinian Christian named Daoud Nasser. He lives with the constant fear of losing everything. Now, before I launch into the story, I need a little sidebar to diffuse what could be uh, a political overtones that could get me in deep trouble. Uh, this is a very heated issue, Palestine and Israel. I want to affirm that I believe there's every right for America to be a staunch political supporter of Israel. However, I do not believe Israel has the divine right to the whole land and can treat its neighbors poorly. So what I want to do in this story is not make a political statement, but I want 
to, to try and set aside politics and help you see a personal story of a man who lives with fear and has coped with it well. Daudenhauser lives uh, on 100 acres uh, of a hillside just south of Bethlehem in the West Bank, which is territory defined by the United Nations and all peace treaties since as Palestinian territory. His problem is Israel wants his land. In 1991, 22 years ago, Israel uh, 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 published a, a paper and sort of circulated it through the community saying this land is now state property. Fortunately, someone found one of these papers and brought it to, to Dowd. They had 45 days to, to appeal if they didn't agree with this. And he quickly assembled a team of lawyers and, and uh, all of his papers. He has documents of ownership on this land going back to the rule of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans, uh, the, then uh, the Israelis, or excuse me, the British who ruled it, then the Jordanians, and now the Israelis. He has documented his ownership of this land. He took this to the court, and the court had never seen anything like it. They didn't know quite what to do. Uh, so now in 22 years, the court has refused to declare a ruling on this case. He has spent $150,000 to try and defend his right to this land. Any moment it could be taken from him. Not being able to quickly uh, remove him from the land, they have made it difficult for him to live there. Uh, shortly after that ruling, neighbors came on his land and cut down 250 of his olive trees, which was his sole support of income and, and well-being. And the police did nothing about it. The police uh, have now put a huge, huge boulders in the road coming into his land. And uh, so the, they have to carry everything in by, by a hand. They can't drive their supplies in. And, and all of us had to walk, walk in past those boulders. Uh, they have uh, cut off all his electricity. They have cut off all his running water. And they have denied him any building permit on the property. So uh, some say, uh, Dawood, why don't you just sell the land and, and leave? They're making it too hard for you. And his brother, who gave us a tour of the property, said, you know, our land is like our mother. We would never sell our mother. It's not as if electricity and power are not available in the area. Right adjacent to his land are three large Jewish settlements. One, as many as 40,000 people. New homes, full electricity, full running water, nice roads, a big barrier wall to keep them separated from the Palestinians. That's his plight. And the fear that anything, uh, everything could go at a moment's notice. So how does he respond to this? We sat with Dowd in one of the caves. He can't have a house. In one of the caves. And he told us his story. He said, you know, we've decided uh, we're not going to play the role of a victim. We're not going to whine and moan. We're going to live as creatively as we can with the limitations that have been imposed upon us. For example, he said, we'll live in caves. Here's a picture of a cave where they, uh, they, their family grew up in this cave. He says, you know, that's not so bad. In the summer, it's cool. In the winter, it's warm. They live in caves. 
uh, we, they uh, have some solar pa uh, panels to give some electricity. Uh, a German uh, group has helped them uh, buy that. They have a huge rock cistern to collect rainwater so they can irrigate their crops. And uh, there was a demolition uh, order on the cistern. Can you imagine? I don't know why you would want to demolish a cistern, but they had a demolition order on that. Uh, they have a compost toilet. And uh, they are doing the very best with what they have, and they're not whining about it. They have put up a tent, a large tent, and that has a demolition order on that they were appealing, which provides a space for internationals. People all around the world have heard about their plight, and they have come to help them, and this is sort of the dormitory for them. Because they cannot have a tractor, they, uh, they, they use uh, hand, all, of, all the visitors help in uh, cultivating the land. And they have, with that help, they have planted 1,700 cabbage plants, 200 olive trees, and a thousand plum and almond trees. And these will provide income and livelihood for them while they're there. It's very impressive. Because of the tent, they have called their place the Tent of Nations. You can actually look that up on the web and learn more about it. It's very impressive. I am so impressed with this Christian witness of this Palestinian Christian under these kinds of circumstances. But perhaps the best witness of all is the slogan that they have. And this is on a rock as you enter into the property. They have this painted on a rock also. I hope you can see it's a little bit difficult. But it's a wonderful saying. We refuse to be enemies. That's Christian witness at its best. You know, this is a paraprosdokian. Did you know that? Uh, para, do you know paraprosdokians? If you're from Stanford, you would know what that is, but it's, it's, a, it's not a disease, it's not contagious. Paraprosdokian is a short saying in which the second half of the saying is a surprise. Uh, maybe even is funny. For example, I'll give you a couple of paraprosdokians just to like this one. Uh, where there is a will, I want to be in it. <laughs> There's a good one on war. War does not determine who is right. It determines who is left. Sobering thought, huh? And here's a good one for uh, if you're in a dispute with someone, if you're arguing with Scott about something, here's a good thing to do. It, you may not get along well afterwards, but it's a good, good, good way to go about it. You say, if I were to agree with you, we would both be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Try that sometime. Don't do it with your husband or wife. That's not good. Here is his paraprosdokian. We refuse. Now, you would think we refuse would be we refuse to take your guff. We refuse to take your oppression, your, your, your mean spirit, your injustice. No, no. This is his Christian witness. We refuse to be enemies. So when the Israel army comes on to harass him, he says, Welcome. Please come in, sit down in our cave, by the way, and we'll serve you tea. And we'll ask how your family is. We'll humanize this relationship. It's a terrific... He, we will, he, they will never uh, play uh, the victim, and they will not ever resort to violence. So we asked Daoud, how do you do that? How do you cope with your fear with such grace and courage? He says, there's only one reason we can do that. 
and that is our faith in Jesus Christ, the first, the last, and the living one. The fear factor is answered by the faith factor. John found the same experience. He's paralyzed by fear until Jesus stands before him with those words. Fear not. I am the first. I am the last. And I am the living one. How big is your Jesus? Is he that big? Look at his self-description. I am the first. That is to say, at the beginning of time, before the creation of the world, I was there. I am the last. At the end of time, when this world is wrapped up and God brings his new heaven and his new earth, I will be there to welcome you home. And I am the living one. I was dead, and I put death to death on the cross. In the flesh I came to you before, and I died on the cross. Now I have come back to you in the spirit, and I am with you today. I am alive. I am here. I am with you forevermore. The first, the last, and the living one. Do you believe that? You know, that's not easy to believe. That's big. Faith doesn't come easily and quickly to all of us. I don't want to be flippant about this matter. I think we struggle with faith, struggle to believe these things. Do you believe that on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, or just on Sunday when some good-looking dude gives us the gospel story and we believe it then, but not the rest of the week? Do we believe it when life collapses on us? And find that that belief has the guts and the strength to help us carry on. Now, here, here's the next issue I want to pose. Why does the belief in this magnitude of a Christ, why does it transfer fear to courage? Why does it help us with our life? Let, let me try and explain it this way. A Princeton professor, Jim Loader, gave a Christian worldview that I think is very helpful in understanding the world we live in. He said there are three inescapable realities or dimensions of life. Everyone must deal with these three. The first is the self. Hey, we're here. We always have to deal with our own feelings, our thoughts, our own being. And in this American culture that focuses so much on the self, we become sometimes narcissistic. For some people, the self is their only reality. That's pure trouble. That's sort of the criminal posture, by the way, isn't it? The only thing that matters is what I want to do and what I feel to think. The self is the first dimension of reality. The second dimension is the world. We all have to somehow deal with the world we live in. Friends, family, history, life, whatever, all of that stuff around us, we have to somehow cope with that. We can't escape the world. We can't even shape the world. So, I did hear about one guy who was very successful and he kind of had the world by a tail and then find I'm fed up with this, I'm going to join a monastery. I don't want anything to do with the world. It's not satisfying, it's just pain. So he joins this monastery, and in this monastery, you could only speak two words a year. 
So at the end of the first year, he, he comes to his superior and he says, hard bed. At the end of the second year, he comes to his superior and he says, bad food. At the end of the third year, he comes to his superior and says, I quit. <laughs> the superior responded, well, I'm not surprised you've done nothing but complain ever since you got here. Monastery may help us, but we can't avoid the world. That's another reality we deal with. The third reality we cannot escape is, I love the word that Loder gives us, the void. It's when catastrophe strikes. It's when loss of huge magnitude comes upon us and we lose everything that's dear to us. The void. Think of the people in uh, Colorado with the fires or Oklahoma with the tornadoes. Or, or think of the, the family of Molly Conley, the 15-year-old who was shot by a drive-by shooting a couple of weeks ago in Deer Park. Think of John and Michaela Butler and the death of their son of 13 days old. The void intrudes upon all of us. None of us can find a way to escape it. Those, this is, I think this is really uh, helpful for me at least to see this. These are inescapable realities. We all live with those. But then, Loder goes on to say there is a fourth reality. There's a fourth dimension to reality. He calls it the holy. It has perhaps many names, God and spirit and love and transcendence. We learn today the name of the holy is Jesus Christ. And this is why believing in Jesus Christ as first, last, and living one expands our world. It would be a tragedy, wouldn't it, to live a three-dimensional life in a four-dimensional world. But many people do. This belief in Jesus changes all the rest of life. Think of those three dimensions that are inescapable, and how the holy, how Jesus Christ changes each of them, the self. There is poison when the self is king in our life, with all of its rampant selfishness and self-centeredness. That's poisonous. And that is assuaged when Jesus Christ comes to call us to die to self that we may be raised to life in him. What else is going to discipline the self for you but Jesus? The world, the tyranny of the world that would conform us to its likeness is broken by the Christ who says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Be of good cheer. You do not need to be tyrannized to be in its mold. Who other than Jesus Christ helps us deal with a world like that? And the devastation of the void is overcome by the Christ who conquers the worst, death itself. He who was dead for us and is alive forevermore and invites us to share in his resurrection. 
Death is still real. Grief is still genuine. But in Jesus Christ, death is not final. He has conquered it and overcome it. And the loss of anything dear to us is surpassed by the the wonder of knowing the experience of the holy in Jesus Christ. How big is your world? Three-dimensional or four? How big is your Jesus? Just a gentle Galilean teacher giving you some nice moral lessons of life? No. Hear this and believe it. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. And he is the one who will transform all our fears into courage. Mighty God, we do thank you for your word, for your son, for the power that he brings to life by helping us see the whole of reality and discovering in him the grace, the courage, the strength to go on. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.